Good morning, I'm Abigail Pecklow. Please join me in 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verses 20 through 27. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to meet him. But he sent envoys to him, saying, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I am not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has commanded me to hurry. See, supposing God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem. And he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah. And all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. They made these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his good deeds according to what is written in the law of the Lord and his acts first and last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and of Judah. This is the word of the Lord. Ten years ago, I was eating lunch down in the basement uh, where my office at seminary was located at the time, and I never got great cell phone reception down there. The calls would come through, but I could never hear who or what was being said on the other end of the line. Uh, so when my phone rang and the caller ID said, doctor's office, uh, I went running up the back stairs so I could answer. So two weeks before this, we had gone in for our first ultrasound. Uh, this was our first pregnancy. Uh, we were, we'd been waiting for it to happen for a year, so of course we were super excited. Uh, we wanted to tell our parents in a special way, so we had taken the ultrasound photos they gave us, scanned them, copied them, mailed them to our parents with a little note that said, open on Sunday, Mother's Day, and call us before you do. So we got to tell each set of parents that they were going to be grandparents for the first time. Uh, we laughed, they cried, it was great. And that was Sunday. Monday, we went back in for our next checkup and were given the bad news. Uh, no growth, no development, no heartbeat. And we were just numb. I called my parents, I called my wife's parents. Uh, they were devastated too. It was a one day emotional roller coaster ride for them from the highest to the lowest. So when the doctor's office called that day at lunch, uh, it had been a rough week already, and I wasn't really expecting good news, uh, which was good, because they didn't have any good news. Uh, they said, your wife's hormone levels are not decreasing like they should, we need to take a look, uh, but we can't get a hold of her. So I left work, drove over to her office, uh, found her with a friend uh, at her favorite lunch place, and just had to say, honey, we have to go to the hospital now. And the doctor there didn't mince words. 
She said, you can have an emergency surgery right now, or you can wait until tomorrow when your regular doctor is back. What do you want to do? And my wife, being my wife, uh, said, we're going to wait. We went home. She scoured the apartment cleaner than it had ever been and put a dozen meals in the freezer. Uh, I think she didn't want me to starve to death in case she didn't pull through surgery. Uh, she's always been an optimist like that. <laughs> she's not wrong. I can't really take care of myself. So the next day, we went in for surgery, and surgery took longer than expected. There were complications. And when it was done, our doctor sat down with us, and she had a very unique brand of bedside manner. Actually, shortly after working with us, she closed her practice down to go back to her old job of being a doctor in the Marines. <laughs> so she said, well, guys, this sucks. You've got less than a 1% chance of getting pregnant again. And if it doesn't happen in the next six months or so, it probably never will. And our collective dreams for our future, for a family, were in that moment given a 1% chance of coming to reality. Tragedy has a way of refining and redefining our faith. Tragedy has a way of testing our belief in God and showing us what we really believe about him. In his book, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis says, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. See, God's existence, God's goodness had become a matter of life and death to us, to me especially. I was a good seminary student. I was learning my Greek and my Hebrew. I was studying my systematic theology. I was serving at my church. I was doing everything I thought would make God happy, and he rewarded me by killing our baby and shattering our dreams. And what kind of sense does that make? How should people of faith respond when tragedy hits? How should people of faith respond when bad news, undeserved suffering, unexplained trials occur? When a relationship self-destructs, or your adult child makes heart-wrenching decisions, or an illness just keeps coming back? When the doctor tells you the prognosis isn't good, or a long hidden secret comes to light? When you just can't seem to make any progress on those things that you really care about? How does a person of faith respond when tragedy happens? Or to make it personal, how do you respond when tragedy happens? How should I? That's the question that's going into today's story. As we read this, what does Josiah's history teach us about the right response when everything goes wrong? Now, it's a story that doesn't, it doesn't tell us how to respond or how to deal with tragedy. It's a story that shows us. So as we read through 2 Chronicles 35, uh, these last few verses, we're going to discover that uh, the faithfulness of Josiah and the faithfulness of the nation of Judah, it doesn't save them from tragedy. It doesn't exempt them from conflict. Uh, but it does give them resources that they needed and that we need today to process through it. 
So as we read this story, there's three main parts. It's a classic storyline, classic arc. There's conflict and then tragedy and then a response. Conflict, tragedy, and response. Now, before we jump in, let's recap where we've been so far in this series we're calling Faith for Pagans. We're taking a look at the life of the last great king of Judah, the southern half of what used to be the whole nation of Israel. And it's been a helpful exploration for us, for me especially personally, because the story takes place in a time when the nation of Israel was essentially pagan. By pagan, I mean that there's a whole multitude of options that are available for people to choose from in figuring out what they believe about ultimate reality, about who God is and how he works, about spirituality and faith. And it's into this context that Josiah became king at a very young age, eight years old. And while still a young man, he was drawn to faith in the covenant God of his people. So he began a religious reform of the nation. He halted false worship around the country, rebuilt the temple of God in Jerusalem, re-centralized the worship of God to the temple in Jerusalem and rebuilt the priesthood itself. And in the process of restoring the temple grounds, a lost copy of the book of the law, what we know as Deuteronomy, was discovered, which upon reading led Josiah to recommit Judah to its covenant marriage relationship with God. And he then led the people in the greatest Passover celebration the nation had yet uh, ever celebrated, a greater Passover even than when Israel was in its golden age under King David and King Solomon. That's what we talked about last week, how Josiah's faith uh, led him to help his people see themselves and who they were in light of the bigger story of God's deliverance of them as a people. And yet, even at the end of that great Passover celebration, when the, the whole nation had recommitted itself to God, the author of Kings still records that the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather, had provoked him. So we know that Josiah's story, his life is a mixture of bitter and sweet. On the one hand, so much good happens, so much progress is made, there's a new age of peace, a religious revival. Uh, on the other hand, we know that that's, that's never going to be enough. The nation is still going to face the consequences of breaking its relationship with God. Tragedy is still coming. And it shows up in the form of Nico, king of Egypt. Take a look at verse 20. We're in 2 Chronicles 35. If you haven't turned there yet, it's on page 456 of that Bible that's underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, so beginning in verse 20, after all of this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Nico, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to meet him. So here's what's happening in the political world that kind of helps us make sense of this conflict and, and why it arose. I see, for centuries, Assyria, which is up north of Israel, had dominated the whole region. Uh, Josiah had successfully rejected and repressed Assyrian domination, partly because of his skill as a king, but mostly because Assyria itself was on the decline. Uh, a faction that it had ruled had sort of coalesced around a new leader and had named itself this new Babylonian empire and had begun hounding Assyria in partnership with another nation called the Medes. 
They'd managed to sack Nineveh and take over, which was an Assyrian stronghold. And then they moved just a couple years before this. They moved on the Assyrian capital, took it, and occupied it. So Assyria has really suffered quite a number of major defeats in the years just prior to this. So for support, they call in their old ally to the south, Egypt. Egypt being located south of Judah in Israel. So Pharaoh Necho, because he's allied with Assyria, begins to march north with his forces to help the Assyrian armies retake their capital city from the Babylonian invaders. So Egypt is marching up the coast when Josiah rides out from Jerusalem to get in their way. Now, lots of commentators have wondered, why did Josiah get involved in this dispute between Egypt and Assyria and Babylon? Why did he try to stop the Egyptian forces? Uh, But plainly, the text doesn't tell us. Uh, Most likely, I think, Josiah knew that if Egypt managed to successfully defend Assyria against Babylon, then Egypt would have almost by default extended its influence much farther north through Judah and what used to be Israel. So I think he knew no matter what, he couldn't stay neutral. And the fight between the Assyrians and Egyptians and the Babylonians, he had to take a side. And so in an effort, I think, to defend Judah's national interests and maybe ward off the threat of coming occupation by Egyptian forces, he tries to at least slow them down and maybe weaken their advance a little bit, give Babylon a better chance of defeating them. Now, verse 21 tells us what follows in this conflict. But he, Nico, sent envoys to him, Josiah, saying, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I'm not coming out against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has commanded me to hurry. Cease opposing God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. That's a fascinating interchange for, for a number of reasons. I mean, it implies first that, that Nico didn't really consider Judah to be enough of a threat to be all that worried about him. Uh, and even though now Nico says, look, I don't really have a fight with you. I'm not quarreling with you. It doesn't change the fact that three months after this, after Josiah dies, Nico takes advantage of the destabilized scene to kind of come back down, depose the new king, put up his own and exact tribute. So, even if he says he's not neutral, or he says he's neutral, he's, he's not. He's got interests here. But what's really interesting is that Nico claims that God is behind him, that God has commanded him to hurry north. And if this is true, and there's some debate about whether or not Nico is really being commanded by God, or if he's just sort of assuming the language of the deity that Judah worshipped in order to to gain political points. But if it's true, it means that God is commanding Nico to ride up north to his own destruction. If Josiah had listened to Nico's words and left him alone, history tells us he would have found himself in a situation where both his oppressors to the south and to the north had been incredibly weakened, and he could have been free for a little while until Babylon decided to come down and try to oppress them. When you're the smallest kid on the playground, you get picked on a lot. And that's what's going on here to Judah and Josiah. Now, unfortunately, Josiah doesn't listen. Take a look at verse 22. It says, Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. 
Now, that's the ESV, the English Standard Version that I just read from. Uh, The NIV translates it, he would not listen to what Nico had said at God's command. And the NIV translates it that way because the phrase, from the mouth of God, which is what the Hebrew says, usually implies a command from God, but it's, it's a little ambiguous. Uh, the New English translation kind of splits the difference between these interpretations and, and captures the nuances the best, I think, uh, saying, Josiah did not take seriously the words of Nico, which he had received from God. So what the chronicler is doing, I think, is more making an observation than an accusation. We need to be careful not to read too much condemnation into Josiah's actions here, as if it were obvious to him what God's will was, and if he had just obeyed, none of this bad stuff would have happened. The author of Chronicles is is looking back on these words and evaluating them in light of what happens. Given the tragedy to come, God was speaking through Nico, and we didn't even know it. So we shouldn't lay absolute blame at Josiah's feet. Like I said, the Hebrew is just a little ambiguous. Uh, it doesn't imply that Josiah rebelled against God, uh, more that he, just, he made a tragic choice. Uh, from ignorance, perhaps, maybe he should have known better, I don't know. Uh, but it's a choice which had deep repercussions for the nation of Judah. In fact, it puts them into a spiral out of which they'll never recover. Now, Nico is the conflict, but the tragedy comes in the next few verses. Look at verse 23. It's pretty terse. Uh, And the archers shot King Josiah. And the king said to his servants, take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You may be wondering why two chariots. Well, one's for battle, one's for distance, like a sprinter and a marathoner, perhaps. Maybe the second chariot had fresher horses. I don't know, but he put him in the second chariot to get to Jerusalem quickly. But he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. The parallel passage in 2 Kings is even more abrupt. It just reads this. Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. It's a national tragedy. It's the kind of tragedy where people remember where they were when they heard the news. They remember what they were doing when they saw their king carted into Jerusalem, having bled out on the way. Now, next week, we're going to explore uh, the rest of the nation's history. Uh, Next week will be the last sermon in this series, Faith for Pagans. Uh, But just as a spoiler alert, uh, there are no more stories with happy endings, not in Judah. So you can imagine the questions running through the minds of the faithful in Jerusalem. God, why did you allow our good king, the best king we've had in generations, why did you allow him to die so young? Couldn't you have made it clearer to Josiah that he wasn't supposed to go, send him a dream or a vision or something like the old stories say you used to do? Or at least send him one of our own prophets. Why did you tell him no through the mouth of of our enemies. How are we supposed to know that that evil man was speaking your truth? God, you're our covenant God. Where are you? 
Why are you forsaking us? Why are you so far away from rescuing us? It's, it's like you're not even listening. God, we cry out every day, but you don't answer. We cry out every night, but you don't give us any rest. Are you going to forget us forever? How long will you hide your face from us? How long are you going to let our enemies have victory over us? Harsh words. Angry words. And you may feel that those words are too strong, not things we should be saying to God. There's not enough faith in those words. But those are actually uh, phrases I pulled right out of the Psalms. Those come from a, a type of psalm called a psalm of lament. Psalms of lament are, are songs that express suffering, songs that express uh, the writer's insistent that, insistence that things are not right, that God needs to change things. These are the songs in the hymn book of the nation of Israel. These are the songs people would sing when they saw Josiah come in. Now, these type of songs, it's interesting, they make up about 40% of the book of Psalms, and they're gut-wrenchingly honest explorations of grief and suffering. They provide a language for pain so that the reality of the tragedy and the pain that comes from experiencing this tragedy can, can be addressed. See, lament is the right response to tragedy. Lament is the right response to tragedy. Look at verse 25. Uh, Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah. And all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. They made these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. This is Jeremiah, the same prophet who we have a book of the Bible named after. Uh, he'd been on the scene for maybe around 20 years at this time at Josiah's death. Uh, and he was known as the weeping prophet. Because so much of what he wrote in Jeremiah and in Lamentations, uh, so much of what he wrote is about grief, about suffering, about anguish. So when Josiah died, Jeremiah composed a lament, a song of mourning. And the singing men and women in their regular song cycles continued to sing songs of lament for Josiah. They even made it a rule in Israel that laments for Josiah would be sung on a regular basis. Regular, repeated, ritualized, prescribed lament. And we're not very good at that. We're not very good at lamenting, especially not in our culture. I don't know if it's something about American optimism or what it is, but this, this is not just a personal thing. It's a whole national thing. We're, we're just no good at it. Even our national holidays, designed specifically for the remembrance of soldiers who have sacrificed their lives for our freedom, we hold barbecues. We have a moment of silence before we start the race. We don't know how to lament. We're not all that good at it as American Christians either. You'd think we'd be better at it. I mean, the Psalms are more than a third laments, but I think there's this underlying notion that if we're sad or if we're questioning God, then our Christianity isn't working. That there's something wrong with it or wrong with us. I've felt this pressure to, to keep up a facade of respectability. Uh, 
of being able to praise God in the good times and in the bad? And how can we tell people about this great life that we're experiencing in Jesus when we ourselves are doubting how great it really is? A few weeks back, I, I finished reading a memoir uh, of the theologian Stanley Hauervoss, and one thought from that book has just been rattling around in my head over and over. I know I've shared it with some of you. And I couldn't find the exact quote again, and I didn't have time to reread the whole book to try to find it so I could share it. So this is a paraphrase, my best recollection of it. Essentially, I recall Harvass saying something, something like this. I find that we moderns tend to think of Christianity as the promise that if we just believe in God, everything in our lives will go right. But in fact, Christianity is the assumption that nothing will go right. Everything will go wrong in some small or large way. Nothing will go right. Everything will go wrong in some way, small or big. But when it does go wrong, Christianity tells us what to do about it. When it does go wrong, Christianity gives us the resources to stay faithful through it. And that has just kept coming up in my head through events in the church, uh, the events in people's lives. Some of you I've shared that with because of the things you've been going through in the last few weeks. That Christianity is not about everything going right, and if it doesn't, God has failed us. It's about knowing what to do when things go wrong. I think Harvass has a point, because sociologists have confirmed that the general shape of Christianity in the United States is not very Christian. Basically, we tend to believe that God wants us to be good, and that if we're good, then he'll help us to take care of problems that may arise. You know, God is distant, and he doesn't really interfere with us until we invite him in in order to fix things. And so ultimately, God requires very little of us other than for us to be good, and then he'll hold up his end of the deal to make us happy so that we can feel good about ourselves. That was my faith. That was my faith when we started to struggle with our infertility diagnosis. That was my pagan faith until God reforged it in the furnace of suffering. So how are we supposed to respond when tragedy happens? How are people of faith supposed to respond when it just doesn't feel like God is coming through for us. There's, there's at least one pretty uh, apparent implication or application of this text, I think, for our lives. Uh, and it's really, it's, it's obvious if you read all the way through Scripture. Uh, but it's simple, and yet somehow I keep finding myself saying, that can't be true. Uh, here it is. Faith does not exempt us from suffering. Faith doesn't save us from tragedy. Faith in God is not a guarantee that our lives will go right if we only believe hard enough or just have enough faith. If you're in the midst of a tragedy or in the midst of suffering, that is not evidence of a weak faith or of disobedience. Because we will all 
go through suffering. Faith does not exempt us from tragedy. That's why reading stories like Josiah's life is instructive for us. We have a guy of solid faith, a guy who has enjoyed the blessings of God for his obedience for 31 years of his reign up to this point. This is a guy who has grown in his faith in God. He's repented. He's confessed his sin. He's humbled himself. He's recommitted to the covenant. He's kept the Passover. This is a guy who basically, the testimony tells us, he did everything right he turned to the Lord with all his heart, all his soul, all his might, Second Kings says. And this is the guy that God handed over to tragedy. Over and over in Scripture, we read the stories of faithful men and women. And talking with one another, we hear the stories of faithful men and women like Josiah who have faced conflict, difficulty, and hardship. The Psalms themselves are full of songs that record the anguish of God's people, written during times of hurt and alienation, disappointment, suffering, and loss. They're filled with questions, with doubts, with rage and despair. The psalmists, they're they're confused, they're bewildered, they're angry. So when tragedy comes, what's our response? If faith doesn't save us from tragedy, you may be tempted to think, well, then what good is my faith? And if you believe that God is essentially a divine butler and therapist, you know, who's there to help make us feel good about ourselves and serve our every need, then a faith that doesn't save you from tragedy is not a faith worth having. But thankfully, God is more than butler and therapist, and our faith is more than just a deistic belief in a God who puts things in motion and then steps away. See, our faith does not save us from tragedy, but our faith does give us the resources to remain faithful through tragedy. Faith does not exempt us from suffering but it does help us remain faithful through suffering. When we were first dealing with our infertility diagnosis, uh, I especially needed to learn to lament. I didn't know how. I didn't even know that was what I needed. All I knew is I had these thoughts and these feelings that I didn't have the language to express. Uh, I, I had this anguish and frustration and anger towards God and with God, and I thought it was a sin to question him, to show that kind of emotion. I mean, I'd read the Psalms a number of times, but for some reason, I still thought they were all happy fun time songs about how Jesus, you know, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Like all the gospel songs that I had grown up singing. I was never taught and I never learned to express lament. Now, laments are not band-aids that you put on top of suffering. They're not a quick fix for grief, nor are they a way to, to move somebody along out of their grief and back into rejoicing so that we don't have to feel so uncomfortable around them. Laments are a, they're a journey toward God, not a destination in and among themselves, 
We lament not in order to stay there, but to eventually move to praise. And the Psalms, the Psalms reflect that. Psalm 13, for example. The first two-thirds are a lament, and then in the last third, the psalmist turns towards trusting God. You know, and that's the way it goes for some of us. Psalm 22 goes back and forth between questioning God and praising Him for His faithfulness, questioning His plan and praising Him for His goodness before finally settling on praise. That's the way it goes for some of us. Psalm 88 begins in despair and ends in even deeper despair. The psalmist says, darkness is my closest friend. That may be where some of you are right now, and that's the way it goes for some of us. Lament is a journey, but but the backbone, the foundation of lament is a deep hope. Not an empty hope that believes that things will just magically get better if we have enough faith. It's, It's a deep and irrepressible conviction that deliverance is coming, now or in the future. And even if I can't believe that now, individually, me for myself, you as a community help me believe. You believe for me when you lament with me. Because laments are always uh, eschatological prayers. They're always, always prayers that look towards the future, prayers that, that see deliverance coming. It's coming at some point. They're relying on God to work in the future. They're prayers that say, even if I can't praise you right now, God, I know that at some point in the future, you'll help me to praise you again. Even if I can't rejoice in who you are right now, God, I know that someday in the future all sad things are going to come untrue. Even if I feel no hope now, I at least have the hope that someday you'll give me hope back. Now, how do we know that that's true? How do we know that hope is coming. We know because we know because we have another king. We have another king who is more perfect than Josiah. We have a king who excelled even the the last great king of Judah. We have this king who loved the Lord his God with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and all his strength more than anyone ever has. And yet tragedy didn't stay away from him. In fact, our king invited calamity. He signed up for it, for the ultimate worst tragedy that could ever happen to a person. On the cross, Jesus Christ willingly chose for the worst of all personal tragedies to be shouldered on him. The agony of separation, the eternal weight of, of a broken relationship with God. He took that tragedy and absorbed it and invited it into himself so that no matter what suffering and tragedy you and I go through, we know there is one suffering we will never experience. There is one tragedy that we will never face. 
And it's the tragedy of being eternally separated from God. Jesus has taken that one that we deserved and taken it on himself. So when we lament, when we believe that hope is coming even if we can't see it now, that, that doesn't solve the problem of, of why. Laments don't tell us why God allows suffering. That's a philosophical question better addressed in the comfort of good times. Laments tell us how to suffer and that our God is not indifferent to our suffering, but in fact has loved us so much that he entered into our suffering in order to suffer with us and go through it with us. See, laments help us go through suffering. Laments help us remain faithful during suffering. They give us the language to express our pain and our frustration, but also our hope and our confidence in God, even when we don't feel that hope ourselves. So I'm trying to learn to lament better. My wife and I are trying to learn to respond to tragedy with faith through appropriate lament, uh, praying our anger and our anguish instead of stuffing it or giving vent to it. So May has kind of unofficially become our month of lament because it's the month of all of these anniversaries, our greatest happiness and also our deepest despair. Sometimes on the same days, they all happen in May. It's the anniversary of our first miscarriage. Uh, it's the anniversary of multiple missed due dates, uh, of a bunch of different surgeries, of Mother's Days spent wrestling in grief before God. It's also the month of our wedding anniversary. Just like Psalm 22, for us, the month of May goes back and forth between God, why, and God, thank you. And sometimes on the same day, like last Sunday was Mother's Day, a day of grief, and our anniversary, a day of rejoicing. And so we lived a lament on that day. For us, lament has become not so much required as just put on us every May. It's the month we have to work the hardest to see God's goodness, but we're reminded of it right in the middle. It's the month that God grows our faith the most, the, the month that reminds me that even on the cross, Jesus himself lamented, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when all I can get out is, I wish things weren't like this, at least I know I'm praying the same way Jesus prayed. And when we suffer, we know it's not because God has abandoned us. He has promised in Christ to never forsake us, to never leave us. So no matter what suffering or tragedy comes, I know it's temporary. I know there is hope coming, even if I can't see it or feel it now. And I'm thankful and grateful that my faith helps me through it. And faith, you guys believe for us. We as a community are called to lament with one another. That's the right response to tragedy. 
Father, you have blessed us not only with a community that mourns with us, each of us, even when we don't share it, we don't know how, we don't feel like we can tell other people what's going on, we can't talk about the secret burdens that we share and the reasons that we just are having a hard time praising you. Uh, but we can look around and know there are others with stories like ours, others with deep griefs who are struggling for the language to express it, others for whom the tragedy and sorrow they're facing have, have rendered them mute. And so we turn to the Psalms, like Psalm 13 and Psalm 88, to borrow words. Lord, you've heard it all before. You won't be surprised to hear it again. But we do rest, and we ask others to rest for us when we ourselves can't. We do rest in the promise that one day you will make all things right, and every tear will be wiped away. Sorrow will be no more. And until that day comes, we lament, and we wish things were different but we pray this in the name of the one who will make things different. In Jesus, your son, our savior and our king. Amen.